Ephesians chapter 6. We're going to read this morning talk about spiritual warfare just a little bit more. And we're going to talk about hope. Hope. Ephesians chapter 6 beginning in verse 10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of His might. And put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities. Prince. Miss Cobb, you ain't an English teacher now, are you? Well, you can't help me this morning then. Against principalities against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to just stand. Stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, and above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. You may be seated. Over the last several weeks we've been talking about Satan's wiles. We've been talking about an invisible war that takes place that each and every one of us fight inside of ourselves, but most people laugh to think that there's actually some great spiritual force named Satan that actually fights with us in this. I started talking about uh, in the 80s whenever Saturday Night Live was going real strong, there used to be a lady on there called the Church Lady. And she'd done a skit every week and she decided that that she would bring celebrities on. And as she brought these celebrities on, she would tell them, ask them about certain sinful things that were going on in the world. And then whenever she would ask them about it, she would, her punchline would always be, do you think maybe the cause of this is Satan? And when she done that, the whole place would just erupt in laughter. And that would let you know that for the majority of the world, the actual idea of Satan or the actual idea of a spiritual force of wickedness is something to laugh about. That we don't really fight with it. But whenever you look in your own life and you look at the battle that takes place within yourself to do what is right and reject what is wrong, guess what? That ought to be proof enough to tell you Satan indeed is real. And it is a battle to choose to do what I know is right. But for some reason, every time I turn around, I find myself doing what I know is wrong. Can I get an amen? We all fight that battle. And the Bible tells us here to, that we, in our own strength, we will grow weak. He tells us that in this battle, there is great fear of us growing weak. So he tells us here in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord. It is only in His strength and in His training and in His weapons and His armor that we actually learn and know how to fight this battle. In and of ourselves, we will grow weak and we will fall in this battle. So He tells us in verse 11 to put on the whole armor of God. 
Don't just have a piece of it. You've got to put it all on because every bit of it works together to protect you from all the things that is trying to sway you from following what is true and what is right. So he tells us here to be strong in the Lord and put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles. Or the wiles means the cunning arts or the deception, the trickery of the devil. He indeed is real. He goes on and he says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age. If you remember, Anna came in and gave a testimony about how with the person that she was living with, she was trying her best to do what is right, but with this person not even knowing it, they were telling her that if you're going to be successful in modeling, you've got to be more open. In other words, what she was saying is you've got to show more skin. You've got to be more open to do things that normally you wouldn't do. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood. That came from Satan himself, from the spiritual forces of wickedness to try to sway Anna in the direction that is not right and is not led by God. But we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. We wrestle against the spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. And in verse 13 he says, Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. In other words, that you may be able to keep pushing him back and keep marching forward toward God. But having done all. In other words, once you have done everything you know to do and you just can't seem to gain no ground. He says, after you've done all, at least with the armor of God, you will be able to remain standing. You may not be able to push forward. You may not be able to do anything else. You may be like Job and the only thing you can do is sit on the ash heap and just cry. But you're not falling. You're still standing firm in the faith of God Almighty. So after you have done all, just stand. In verse 14, he says, stand therefore having girded your waist with truth. In other words, we learned that girding your waist meant to be ready immediately. Jesus told his disciples, have your waist girded that, that when I come, you may open to me immediately. In other words, he was saying, be ready. Always be ready. Have your waist girded and always be ready to move. So he says here, be ready with what? With truth. The reason we're ready with truth is because one of the number one tools of Satan is lies. He comes at you and he tells you, if you're going to be successful in modeling, you've got to be more open. And the only thing that you have to fight against that is the truth of the Word of God to say, if I'm going to be successful, what I have to do is follow God. That's the truth. And if you abide in His Word, you are His disciples indeed. And He says in John chapter 8, verse 30 through 32, that you shall know the truth, and the truth shall what? Set you free. So he says, always be ready with truth. But then he tells you to put on the breastplate of righteousness. I want you to forget about the piece of armor for right now and just look at what he's talking about. First and foremost, he's talking about truth. Being ready with it. Second, he's talking about putting on righteousness. Satan don't care if you believe in Jesus or not. Guess what? He believes in Jesus. Even the demons believe, and guess what? They believe so much, they tremble. They tremble at the sound of Him. They believe He is Lord of all. When He steps on the scene, each one of them look at Him and say, What are you doing here, Son of God Most High? They call Him that by name. 
But believing alone is not going to save you. He says here that we have to put on righteousness. In other words, we have to walk in faith, fully trusting God, putting on the ways of Jesus Christ. And as we follow Him, not that works are what saves us, but faith without works is what? Dead. And can dead faith save you? No. Suppose God were to come to Noah and say, Noah, I'm going to flood the world. And unless you build an ark... I'm go- you're going to perish with the rest of the world. And no one were to look at God and say, Okay, God, I believe you. With all my heart, I believe you. But he's too lazy to build the ark. Is Noah going to be saved? I don't care how much Noah believed God. Unless he moves in the direction of God's counsel by faith, Noah will not be saved. So Satan says here, if you'll just stay where you're at and keep living the way you're living, guess what? I'm okay with that. And that's my goal, is to keep you from moving forward in God. So he says here, to guard against that, we put on righteousness and we move forward in God and not backward. And finally, or not finally, but next he goes to verse 15. Having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Listen, feet are for moving from one place to the other, right? So here's what I see Paul saying here. Be ready to move with the gospel of peace. Why? Because that is the heart of the battle. The very thing that frees the ones that are trapped and blinded by Satan is the gospel that you can have peace with God through Jesus Christ himself. The Bible says that Satan uses these blinded minds that don't even realize they're just doing their thing, living their life, but they're not following Christ. And the Bible says that Satan uses these people and he plants them in the paths of believers. They're like tares amidst the wheat. And he says that as these people are planted in the midst of these Christians that they become hindrances to their Christian walk. Well, guess what? If you will be ready to move with the gospel of peace, you can turn tares into wheat. And you can remove the hindrances that Satan tries to throw in your life. And you can remain standing and not fall. And then he moves on to where we were last week. Verse 16 Those two words, above all. And I went back to the Greek form of these words and I read them to you and I explained to you that the word above actually means operating inside of. The Greek word for which we get above means operating in front of, inside of, and above. So they just translated it to say above. But then the word all is translated from the Greek to mean of each individual one. Not just a total, but each individual part of a total. So if you were to read the verse like this, it makes more sense. Operating inside of each individual one of these, take the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. Now think about this. Faith means that you wholeheartedly trust someone's counsel, their word, no matter what they say, you believe it. You trust their direction, their counsel. You move your life in the direction of their counsel. And faith means that you have confidence in the promises that they give you and your life revolves around His word, His direction, and His promise. That's faith. So He says here, you've got to have 
full trust in God all the way around, operating inside of everything you do, operating above everything you do, and operating in front of everything you do. What he's saying is simply this. Faith must operate inside of everything we do because without faith, even our good deeds and truth and righteousness are like filthy rags. The Bible says that without faith, it is impossible to please God, right? So think about this. Let's say you fight the devil with all the truth of God's word. You're putting on righteousness and good deeds and you're walking in the image of Jesus Christ, but you're not doing it fully trusting in God, having confidence in His Word, having confidence in His direction and counsel, and having confidence in His promises, guess what? It's like filthy rags. It's no good. So he says if you're going to protect yourself from being a religious hypocrite, basically what you're doing if you're not walking by faith, if you're going to protect yourself from that, because listen, Satan will let you be a religious hypocrite. Oh, he loves those. If you're going to protect yourself from becoming that, you have to above all, inside of everything you do, in front of everything you do, above everything you do, operate in faith. And this will quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. Think about this for a minute. Faith must operate in front of everything we do because even when using the truth, putting on righteousness, moving with the gospel of peace, even when you do all those, sometimes that don't remove the attack of Satan. But faith will keep you from falling even when the rest of them have not removed the attack. Think about Job. He comes, he gets the news. you got seven dead sons and three dead daughters. Anybody been there before? Seven dead sons and three dead daughters. And he's getting the news. All of your possessions have been wiped out. Then another, another morning he wakes up and he's got bulls all over him and, and, and he's got a deathly disease with not much time to live. Basically, you've just lost all your kids, all your possessions, and the doctor said you got stage four lung cancer, you got three months to live. What kind of day have you just had? Pretty rough day, isn't it? And Job, even there, his wife comes to him, not flesh and blood, but under the direction of Satan and says, why don't you just curse God and die? And he used the truth of God's word. He said, wait a minute, woman. Why in the world would you speak like those foolish women speak? Shall we receive good from the hand of God and not evil? He's never done me nothing but good. He fought with the truth and he remains standing, right? He didn't curse God. But is the trial gone? His kids are still dead. He, he's still sitting on his ash heap with no possessions and the only thing he's got is what little bit of health he's got left. That's it. But the trial's not gone. And then he speaks of his righteousness, of the good deeds that he put on. I took in the stranger. I was a father to the fatherless. But even still, with all his righteousness, did the trial go away? The attack's still coming. And then he talks about how he moved with the gospel of peace that the young men inside the gates opened their ears and, and just listened for his wisdom to come. And even still, moving with the gospel of peace, guess what? The trial's still not gone. But the only thing that keeps Job standing is the fact that in Job chapter 13 verse 15, I believe it is, he said, though he slay me, still will I what? Trust him. Though he slay me, still will I have confidence in his word. 
Still will I have full trust in his direction and his counsel. Though he slay me, still will I trust that his promise is still good for me. He shall redeem me. Salvation is still mine. And because of that, faith keeps Job standing. So above all, operating inside of, operating in front of, operating above uh, everything of each individual thing you do, faith is the only thing that can quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. This morning I'm going to get into a very simple and maybe not too long message about the helmet of salvation. Look at verse 17. Take the helmet of salvation. We're talking about the armor of God and putting things on that protect you. And I ask, how in the world does a helmet of salvation protect us? I thought about it. A helmet, it protects your head from a deadly blow in the battle. There are all kind of things that can come flying at you that can crush your skull and deliver a fatal wound to you to knock you down and almost out of the fight if you're not careful. And he says here there's a helmet that you can put on that when the toughest things come your way and threaten to destroy you, threaten to destroy your faith and everything that you believe in God, when you're sitting in one of those situations, there's a helmet that you can put on that will keep your head from being crushed. And he said it is a helmet of salvation. But, and I think Tim's got my message, so if y'all don't get to flip there, I'm going to go through them pretty quick to save time. First Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 8, Tim. Paul explains a little better about what this helmet of salvation is. Look what he says. But let us who are of the day be sober, putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the what? The hope of salvation. In other words, this helmet that he's talking about is a helmet of hope of salvation. But I thought, somebody says to me this morning, I thought we already had salvation. Well, yes and no. Go with me just for a second. First, uh, look at Romans chapter 13, verse 11. Tim, I have that one too. And do this, knowing the time that now it is high time to awake out of sleep, for now our salvation is what? Nearer than when we first believed. In other words, it is not something we have actually received yet, Correct? We have a hope of salvation because of Jesus Christ. But it's nearer today than when you first believed. So this helmet that you have to put on is a helmet of hope of salvation. But listen, I'm not talking about the kind of hope that human hope is. Think about it like this. We got some little young baseball players in here. How many of y'all baseball players in here, Landon, do y'all hope that you're going to make it to the championship? You hope you're going to make it to the championship, don't you? But are you guaranteed to make it to the championship? No, it's possible you could lose a game. See, our hope is a hope of uncertainty. But the Bible says that the hope that we have in Christ is a hope of full assurance is what Hebrews calls it. The book of Hebrews calls it the full assurance of hope. In other words, we have evidence that can back up our claim that not only do we hope for it, but it is a full assurance of hope. We know beyond a shadow of doubt that salvation is coming to us. It's not an uncertainty. It is a certainty. Look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 5, Tim. 
who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, what? Ready to be revealed in the last time. We don't have it yet. It is a hope of it. If you would, look at Titus chapter 1, verse 2. In hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began. The Greek word that Paul actually used when he talked about the helmet of salvation. Y'all stay with me here. When he talked about the helmet of salvation, the Greek word that he actually used is a word that is called soterius. Soterius is a word that means the hope of future salvation. In other words, the helmet that you're putting on is a helmet that understands one thing. This world will bring you trouble as a Christian. You understand that, right? The Bible said that those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. That's just it. Jesus said, A servant is not above his master, nor is a student above his teacher. If the world treats the master this way, how much more will they treat the servant? If the world treats the teacher this way, how much more will the student be treated this way? So when everything in the world seems to fall apart, there's one thing that can hold it together. Hope. Hope of salvation. We remember that it, weeping may endure for a night, but guess what comes in the morning? Joy comes in the morning. That's the reason why you hear the saints of old talking in the Psalms about, I may have to struggle to get through the night, but I know in the morning God's going to deliver me. I know that He shall save me from my enemies. It is a hope of future salvation and we have evidence because God promised it to us before time began. And guess what? He cannot lie. It's not possible. So we're talking about the hope of future salvation here, but we don't have this salvation yet. Look at Romans chapter 8, verse 24 and 25, Tim. For we were saved in what? We were saved in this hope. I thought we were saved by faith. Well, faith is the substance of what? We were saved in this hope. But hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? Verse 25, Tim. But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. In other words, what Paul is saying is this, that this hope inside of us ought to be so real, it ought to be so great, that we eagerly wait for the salvation of the Lord. We ought to pray just like Jesus said, pray in the Lord's Prayer when He said, Father, Thy kingdom come. In other words, Lord, come quickly. You can't get here soon enough. This world is falling apart and everything in it is going down. You can't get here quick enough, so Lord, come quickly. We are eagerly waiting, but we're waiting in perseverance. We're driving forward. We're marching in you, and we're living for your purpose and for your call. This hope of salvation keeps us from giving up in a world where outside of Christ there is no hope. Like I said before, how many of you have noticed yet that this world is temporary? There are things that you lose in this life that will cause you to give up hope. And the only thing that's going to keep you alive in faith during this situation is true hope 
a hope of salvation. So my next question is this. Where do we get this hope from? Well, here's what I say to you this morning. It comes from the very thing that we're here to celebrate. Why are we here this morning? What are we celebrating? What is Easter morning? Resurrection. The hope that I'm talking about, the only way you can have it, the only way everything in your world can fall apart and you can still say, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. The only way is through believing in the resurrection. Let me prove it to you. Look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 through 5. Let's see what Peter says about this. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 through 5. Tim must not have got that one typed in there. He's typing fast as he can go right now, though. I bet he's panicking right now. There he is. Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a what? A living hope. In other words, this is not a hope of uncertainty. This is a hope that produces life inside of us. Look what he said again. He said, Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again, or more correctly, has caused us to be born again. That's what that word begotten means. He has caused us to be born again, and here's what too, a living hope. But notice what is it through? Through what? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So this living hope that we have, it comes through the resurrection. Nothing else can bring it. If you don't believe in the resurrection this morning, let me tell you, you have no hope. None. If you cannot believe in a risen Savior, then I want to tell you this morning, there is no hope for you. If you cannot believe in the risen Savior, I want you to tell you a dead Savior can't do nothing more for you than Buddha can. A dead Savior can't do nothing more for you than Muhammad can. A dead Savior can't do nothing more for you than my poor old granddaddy that's in the grave right now can't do a thing for you. Nothing. You know why? He's dead. That sounds harsh, but it's true. Listen, if Jesus Christ is dead this morning, we have no hope. Let's look at the way Paul puts it. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 12 through 18. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 12 through 18. I want to explain this to you just a little bit better. In verse 12, Paul says this. Now if Christ has preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then guess what? Christ is not risen. He goes on to say in verse 14, And if Christ is not risen then our preaching is empty. If Christ is not risen, then your faith is also empty. Yes, and if Christ is not risen, then we are found to be false witnesses of the true God because we have testified of God that He raised up Christ, whom He did not raise if in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is useless. You are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. You know what that says? If Christ is not alive, then all your loved ones who believed in Him, guess what? They're in hell. That's just the truth. If Christ is not risen, 
then all those who believed in him and they died, they've perished. He goes on, he says not only that, but in verse 19, if in this life only we have hope in a dead Christ, <laughs> we are of all men most pitiable. I want to talk about those for just for a minute because Paul is saying something here without saying it. So basically I want to say to you what Paul said but he didn't say. Y'all with me? I didn't lose nobody there, did I? Look what he starts out with in verse 14. If Christ is not risen, that's what all this is based on, okay? If Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty. For sake of time, I'm going to skip over that one, but the opposite of empty is what? So if Christ is risen, then our preaching is full of purpose, full of need, full of reason to be not ashamed of it and declaring it. But he also says, if Christ is not risen, then your faith is also empty. But however, if Christ is risen, then your faith is full of purpose. Now we learned last week that faith is completely trusting in someone's word. Whatever they say, they live up to it. We trust it completely. Faith is fully trusting their direction and counsel and following it. You move your life in that direction. Faith is fully confident in the promises that they deliver. That's, that's what faith is. So let me say this. If Christ is not risen, then guess what? You can't trust the word that he said because he's a liar. If Christ is not risen, now don't hear me calling Christ a liar this morning. Somebody going to start throwing stones. I know I'm a Christian preacher, but I'm saying if Christ is not risen, then your faith is empty. You have trusted a word of a man that said in three days I will rise again, and yet he didn't. He lied. If that is the case, then your faith in him and you fully trusting in his word is useless. It has no purpose. Not only that, but if you are moving your life in the direction of his counsel because you fully trust his counsel, he's dead. You're living for him in vain. You're missing out on all your fleshly desires for what reason? For what purpose? You could be enjoying yourself. You could be sitting back enjoying your drunkenness and your gluttony and everything else that, that God's trying to walk us away from and structure us in a different way. You could be enjoying just living your life up and yet you follow His direction and His counsel. And for what? If He's dead, your faith is useless. And not only that, but you have confidence in His promise if you have faith in Him, and yet He's dead. He couldn't even deliver His promise to Himself that He would rise again. What in the world would make you think He can do anything for you that He promised? He says if Christ is not dead, you have no faith. It's useless. But let's turn this thing around and say what Paul ain't saying. He's alive. And you can fully trust His word. He is the only one that has ever said, I'm going to die and in three days I'm going to get up. And done it. Tell me who else defeated death. Only Christ. And he says here that, well, Lazarus, but Christ defeated it for him. So let me back that up. Only Christ 
You can completely trust His Word. He did not lie. He done exactly what He said He would do. Therefore, His Word is fully trustworthy. And if His Word is fully trustworthy, then His direction and His counsel and walk in your life in that direction, you can trust it. And then He promises that if you follow Him, He is the way, the truth, and the life. And anyone who follows Him will make it to the Father in eternal life and they will spend eternity with Him. He has promised that He has a mansion prepared for you and that He he will come again and receive you unto himself. And if he promised that he would rise again and he defeated death and done it, do you not believe you can trust his promise that he's coming again? So you won't hope the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the only thing that you can believe in that's going to deliver you any hope in this world. Moving on, second thing. I'm going to skip on down to verse, um, let's go down to verse 17. I'm going to skip quite a bit in this. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile, you are still in your sins. Did you catch that? If Christ is not risen, then your sins are not forgiven. And guess what? They still got to be paid for somehow. And if Christ is not risen, He didn't pay for them. He can't pay for them. And now who's left to pay for them? You. And guess what? The payment for them is the second death, eternity in hellfire, and you have no choice but to pay it. So I want to look at this right here. Look at Romans chapter 4, verse 25. Because here's what the resurrection gives us hope in. The resurrection proves that your sins are forgiven. Anybody ever been in that place where you lay your head down at night and you go, Lord, what reason do I have to pray forgiveness for this time? I failed you so many times, I've messed up so many times, I've done this, I've done that. What reason do you possibly have to forgive me this time? Anybody been there? And yet, look what Paul says in Romans chapter 4 verse 25. He says that Jesus was delivered up or he was delivered up unto death because of our offenses. He died for our sins, our transgressions, our offenses, but it didn't stop there. If Jesus only died, that's only half of the step. He says that there's another part that has to take place for your sins to be forgiven. Look where he goes. He was raised because of our justification. When you go back and you read that Greek word for justification, and that's important to study the original terms. Let me explain to you why. The word justification means to be, to be declared free from guilt and acceptable unto God. That's the word that they're using. To be declared free from guilt and acceptable from God. You are guilty because of your sin condition, right? He was delivered up and died so that you might be saved from your sin. You were free from guilt. However, there's a second part. You have to be acceptable unto God. And he says that he was raised up because of our being acceptable unto God. In other words, what I take this to mean is this. If Jesus Christ didn't rise from the dead, you know what that means? God did not free us from our guilt because he was raised up for our justification. So if he didn't rise from the dead, then you're not free from your guilt and you are still in your sins, damned for an eternity in hell. That's the truth. If he did not raise up, then it was not acceptable unto God. He did not accept the sacrifice. It was not worthy of the price that had to be paid. And you are still in your sins. Oh, but thanks be to God Almighty 
He is risen. He is risen and I wish I had about another hour to explain to you why I believe he's risen but I don't have the time so I'm just going to preach this message. You can come back next week. We may do that one, all right? He says here, because he was risen, we know that God indeed has freed us from our guilt. Let me tell you something this morning, people. The hand of the Lord is not shortened that he cannot reach you wherever you're at. I don't care what you've done. I don't care how deep down you've got yourself in this dirty mess. I want to tell you the hand of the Lord is not shortened that he cannot reach down and get you wherever you are. And if that is the case, we know that he's risen. And because of that, we can be free from our guilt by believing and trusting in the resurrection of Jesus Christ that that justifies us. And we can know from his resurrection that we are acceptable unto God even as we are. We stand before God filthy, wretched, sinners and yet God says, I'll take it. I'll take it. I'll take it because I love them. The price has already been paid. They trust in it by faith and I know they're dirty but I'll take it. I'll clean them up. I'll take care of it. That gives me hope. Let me tell you something. If I have to account for my sin in myself, I have no hope. But because I know he's risen, I know that he's freed me from guilt. And I know that I am acceptable in his sight. I'm justified. And that gives me the hope of salvation. Number three and last one. Comes from verse 19. Look what he says. If in this life only we have hope in a dead Christ... We are of all men most pitiable. Let me ask you. Those guys that flew those jets into the Trade Center in 2001, they were supposedly doing it because of their faith, right? If I fly this plane and I die as a martyr of my faith, I'm going to receive a place in heaven with 70 wives and 70 virgins and paradise which is joy forever. How pitiable is that? They're dead now. Do you think they're sitting up there with 70 virgins and 70 wives and enjoy? How bad are they to be pitied because of what they, because of what they actually believed? Well, guess what? If Christ is dead and you've put your faith in him, and you've put your trust in him, and you follow his direction and his counsel, and you trust his promises, and yet he's dead... You are of all men most pitiable. Look what Paul says in um, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 30 through 32. Paul says, if Christ is not risen, why do we stand in jeopardy every hour? In other words, what he's saying is this. As a Christian, I have to stand for things that the world is completely against. Why in the world do I stand up here and preach that people are lost and going to hell? How many of them want to throw a stone at me for delivering that message? Why do I stand up here and preach that homosexuality is wrong in the eyes of God? Not that God don't love you, but He asks us to walk in His ways, not our ways. And our ways, according to homosexuality this day and time, oh, there's nothing wrong with it. But it ain't my ways, it's about His ways. And his way says it's wrong. And how many of you know that if I get on the air tomorrow on the radio and stand and say homosexuality is wrong, guess where I'm going to be the next day? 
in the newspaper. I'm going to be in the newspaper. I'm going to be on Larry King Live. Larry, he ain't even on, he ain't on no more, is he? Well, I'm going to be on uh, Kelly, Gra- Kelly Grace. It ain't no Kelly Grace. Nancy Grace. That's her. I'm going to be on Nancy Grace. And I'm going to be giving an account for why I'm standing saying homosexuality is wrong. And for what? Because I believe in Jesus Christ. And he says here, if Jesus is dead, then why in the world do I stand in jeopardy every hour? Go to verse 31. Look what else. I affirm by the boasting in you which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die daily. You know what Paul is saying? Why do I stand in jeopardy every hour and why do I deny myself of all the things that I want in this world? Why do I deny my fleshly desires of the things that I know are not right and yet I want to follow Christ and why do I do that? Go to verse 32. He says, if Christ is dead, if in the manner of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, what advantages is that to me? If the dead do not rise, look what Paul says, then let us eat and drink for tomorrow, our best case scenario, we die. If Christ is not risen, then you know what? Go on out there and get you a fifth after this is over with. Go get you a fifth. Go get you. If Christ is, and now listen, I'm just being straight. If Christ is not alive in your life, go get you a fifth after so we Get yourself drunk as you can get. Go out there and have yourself a ball. I'm talking about find yourself all the things you've ever desired in your life. Because if Christ is not alive, then let us eat and drink because tomorrow we die. Might as well live it up right now. Amen. But guess what? Christ is alive. If he's not alive and we are denying ourselves all these things and we are of all men most pitiable. Look at the way we live. But today Christ is alive. And because he's alive we're not pitiable. My third point is this. What gives us hope? We should be envied. We should be envied for the life that we live. I want to give you an example. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17, if you got that one, Tim. For our light affliction, and that's what it is, living in a Christian life, it's a light affliction, denying some things, walking after God, suffering through some things. He says, but for our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. In other words, Jesus has promised us a reward that eye has not seen, ear has not heard, heart has not even uh, felt the things that God has prepared for those who love Him. We cannot even imagine it. And he says here that if we go through our light affliction following Christ because He is alive, it is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Look at Romans chapter 8 verse 16 through 18. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Verse 17. And if children, then heirs and heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him, that we may also be glorified together with Him. Look at verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present world as a Christian, the things I have to deny, the things I have to go through, I consider that the sufferings of this world are not even worthy to be compared with the glory that's going to be revealed in us on that day when He comes to give us what He has promised us. But without a resurrection, there's no hope in any of it. So I say to you this morning, and this is my closing, faith is the substance of our hope.
Faith is the active ingredient of our hope. The hope of salvation. Hope is the future part of faith. Faith is an all-around trust of God. I trust in His past. I trust in His present. I trust in His future. The faith is the substance of things hoped for, the future part of faith. And it is the evidence of things unseen. The, the word, the proof that we have that He has been resurrected from the dead. In other words, the reason why we fully trust Christ's word the reason why we fully trust His direction and counsel, the reason why we fully trust His promises is because of our hope. It is because of the full assurance of salvation that He has promised us. And this hope or this full assurance comes from the proof of His faithfulness. It comes from the proof of God's acceptance of His sacrifice. It comes from the proof of His power to do anything in the resurrection, even defeat death. And if He can defeat death, He can defeat our worst enemy. There is no greater enemy for us than death. My invitation is this. Are you eagerly waiting? Or are you clinging to this life? Did y'all hear what I said? I ask a question. Are you eagerly waiting in the hope of salvation? Let's say you woke up tomorrow and the news, the, the, the Andy Griggs is knocking on your door. And you know why Andy Griggs is knocking on your door? Your kids just died in a car wreck. Y'all with me? The police is knocking on your door. Your kids have just died in a car wreck. You've got a doctor's appointment you've got to make that day because they found something on the x-ray or that, that they've got to check out. And whenever you get to the doctor, they tell you you've got, you've got stage 4 cancer and you, you just ain't got long to live. There ain't even no sense in trying to treat it. You find out that, that all of the, the possessions, are, the bank's coming to get it because now you've lost your job and, and, and your whole world has just fallen apart. All hope is gone, right? Unless, unless you understand that everything in this world is temporary. Unless you understand that I cling and eagerly wait to a world to where I don't have to experience death. That's the reason we stand up here and sing songs that say no more sorrow and no more pain. Y'all understand that? That's the reason why we stand up here and we sing, Oh, glorious day. Unless you are eagerly waiting and clinging to the hope of salvation, your world will fall apart and you will lose all hope and you will fall. But you can stand in this battle if you have the hope of salvation. The future hope. So I ask the question, are you, are you eagerly waiting with perseverance for our salvation? Are you praying, Lord, come quickly. Can you pray this morning? Lord, if you got here right now, it wouldn't be soon enough. Or are you praying, Lord, not yet. Not yet, Lord. I'm not quite ready. I want to say to you, you need to look at the resurrection and see what God has done. And that is the only way that this hope is going to be created in you. If you're still clinging to this life, I want to invite you to put your faith and your trust in God and look to the promise that He has for you. If you don't have this hope, 
Maybe you've never truly believed in the resurrected Christ. By believing in the resurrection, it creates this living hope. Trust Him. Confess Him. Believe He is resurrected. And guess what? You will be saved. You will have this hope with the helmet of the hope of salvation when you look around and all you see in this world is hopelessness. Your helmet of hope in Christ will keep you from falling in this great battle. When this life is over, salvation is what awaits me. What awaits you? It can be eternal life if you'll put your trust and your faith in Him today.